Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Well, uh, we are at time, so if, gentlemen, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll get started here. Um, so for those of you who have been um, with us, you've been hearing some uh, great conversation among some good friends here, uh, great scholars, uh, Stephen Tootle of the College of the Sequoias and, and David Alvis of, of Wofford College, uh, long-time long friends uh, of Ashbrook and, and do a lot of uh, programs for Ashbrook and teaching our master's program, the MAG program, and they're here to help us have another great Saturday webinar, uh, teachingamericanhistory.org Saturday webinar, which of course is sponsored by the Ashbrook Center. And TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, and teacher students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. Um, I've already introduced our uh, esteemed guests for today. Um, I guess we should feel fortunate that Stephen is able to join us, especially uh, after <laughs> after hearing about what went on last night. So very grateful. Uh, glad you're here as well, David. Of course, right? Um, so this year's theme for our webinars is moments in crisis, and as always, we're, we try to pull together some thoughtful, interesting uh, scholars and have a have a conversation and. Um, we invite all of you joining us to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box, and I will try to get to as many of those as possible. But David and Stephen, if you see questions pop up that you want to tackle, by all means, don't don't wait for me. And of course, as always, uh, feel free to take this conversation in any direction you think is is interesting. Um, and occasionally, I'll ask questions, and you, of course, are free to ignore them. Uh, so. Uh, I'm used to that. So um, I'm supposed to mention to the people joining us that in the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So today we're talking about Watergate. And um, just uh, since we're coming, sort of coming to the close of another season of webinars, and again, this year's theme is crises. Looking back, I'm 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 kind of struck by the variety of crises that we've dealt with. Um, uh, everything from uh, wartime crises, uh, we've, we've done the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, to, uh, to to sort of uh, crises, uh, domestic crises with regard to the civil rights movements, um, and this 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 crisis in particular seems unique in the sense that it really maybe is the first one that we've talked about that seems to have been a crisis in the sense that it kind of shook the trust that uh, Americans uh, had in their institutions and in, in especially in the office of the presidency. At least that's, that's how a lot of people think about it. So I, I just want to start by throwing out to either of you the opportunity to, to talk about what do you, what do you, in, in, in what sense is this a crisis? Why do we, why and, and, and particularly, um, I'm, I'm also amazed at the fact that uh, what is is it forty some years if my math is correct forty some years later, this is still considered to be one of these jarring moments in in American political history. It still is considered to be one of the great crises. So, what, what's the nature of the crisis? Why has it had such 
um, enduring significance uh, for Americans. Um, either of you want to tackle that question or make up a question of your own, feel, feel free to jump right in. I'll let uh, I'll start, and I'll, then I'll disagree with whatever he says. There we go. That's, <laughs> good. That's a good order. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, first, the first thing I, I would point to in terms of the um, – uh, why why it's commonly perceived as a crisis is it, in some ways Watergate really is the culmination of a um, of a longstanding tension between the presidency uh, and Congress and it's probably one that really kind of begins with the um, during the New Deal with the centralization of political power in the executive branch. And in some ways, the executive becoming, in some way, uh, the dominating force, uh, determining the budget, uh, determining the legislative agenda, uh, and also, too, becoming involved unilaterally in foreign affairs. So what you increasingly have at the beginning of the 20th century into the mid-20th uh, century is a uh, greater and greater escalation of, of concentrating power in that executive branch. And Nixon is um, you know, uh, a Republican that comes after a long time in which um, uh, Democrats in the White House and in Congress had worked together, uh, but with the executive kind of um, running the show. And that hadn't been such an objection until you get a Republican who opposes the New Deal. And Nixon uses all the powers that uh, presidents, uh, his predecessors had used um, to kind of cajole Congress, uh, and it, by the point with, with the kind of opposition that he brought uh, to the New Deal and to Congress, um, really you begin to see the extent of executive power. So, I mean, a lot of the things having to do with Watergate really um, uh, had, their, uh, had sort of precursors and other actions taken by uh, Nixon, particularly, um, you know, one of the probably the best examples is uh, Congress was interested in promoting this, uh, in legislating this uh, uh, Federal uh, Water uh, Pollution Act, and uh, they pass it. Nixon vetoes it. Congress overrides his veto, and then Nixon simply impounds the funds that have been appropriated for that program. And this really, uh, Congress became suddenly aware, right, of how much power uh, that executive had, and Nixon was willing to wield a lot of it. And so uh, scholars begin referring to this period as the imperial presidency. And it wasn't just Nixon, but rather uh, also two presidents like Johnson who had come before him. But the attention of the issue really focused on Nixon. So Watergate, in some ways, is the culmination of that, uh, of that rising tension between uh, Congress and the and, and the executive in the early 20th century. That's fascinating. Was it a Democratic Congress Nixon was dealing with? Primarily. Primarily, yeah. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting. I, I Stephen, agree or disagree? No, I agree with everything he said. Um, I just uh, I tend to think of it as more of a crisis in political history uh, because of what was unleashed when it was unleashed. So... Um, as my old advisor used to say, we had two presidents in a row, the two presidents in American history uh, most in need of psychotherapy, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, with, um, who were both the people who were impatient with following the rules and um, thought that politics was a blood sport and um, 
were, I mean, uh, we always, you know, we're talking about Watergate and the bugging, but uh, Johnson bugged Nixon's campaign plane. And what did he discover when he bugged Nixon's campaign plane? That Nixon was uh, meddling in American foreign policy w during the campaign. It's it, These guys were, uh, they both thought that this is how politics had to happen, and they approached it as a blood sport. And I always think about it as, uh, in addition to all the administrative things, and if, if you hadn't said that, I would have said all that stuff, I, maybe. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, I, I would simply add to it, <clears throat> the, the, the other thing that I try to never forget in the post-war period is what age were the baby boomers when this was happening? <laughs> and so... Um, while this is happening, it's it, it's at the tail end of the Vietnam War. It's uh, when um, baby boomers are entering college and graduate school, and um, with the sort of and uh, a sense of disillusionment with politics in general, um, and uh, a long-term cynicism. So uh, the other reason why I always think of it as a crisis is that. Our entire system of government depends on people believing in it, and this is—it's not—it's not overnight, but this is kind of one of those tipping points where um, people become get become really cynical. Um, and then the other thing that that was unique about this era was how unified the media was. Um, this is at a time when TV news. Uh, and print journalism were both um, maybe at their high point, <laughs> so uh, and so it made it possible for um, uh, for Americans to follow this story in a way that was um, unrecognizable to today's media environment. Meaning, you had print journalists who had decades of experience in Washington, uh, who could contextualize whatever the story was, and at the same time, you had TV news that was really able to focus the attention of the American people every day. So it, it, the stories were hitting people in a way that, um, uh, that, that maybe we wouldn't recognize today. So I, I guess I'd throw those three things. Well, those are great points, especially to help us to put it in historical context, and, and, and especially your point about... Um, the timing of what was unleashed by uh, by some of Nixon's actions following um, Johnson, and of course, you know the the the, the decade of, of of deep discontent, and you, you mentioned the baby boomers. You, you know, you've got the, the the students for democratic society and those sorts of things coming out of the 1960s, and so I can see how something like this that betrayed um, it seemed to betray the, the or reveal. <laughs> Um, that, that the trust Americans had traditionally put in their government had had been misfounded to a certain extent. I can see how that became such a critical thing in light of what you were just saying. Well, one of the things, I don't know if we need to leap into the topics, but you know, one of the things that was most shocking to Americans that, I, I don't know, was, uh, because as historians, we're used to reading presidential transcripts, so we know how presidents talk, but right. people were genuinely horrified <laughs> at how, how Nixon talked behind closed doors and you know when they were when it <laughs> expletive deleted you know a lot of those were hells and dams that people just put fucks into 
but he was really just saying hell and damn. Right. But but Nixon uh, also used the word cocksucker a lot, which people found just, I I mean, the idea that the president would talk this way was so wildly offensive to people. Like, I can't believe this is our president. And this is how he sounds when behind doors. I mean, it is offensive. <laughs> sure, sure. Now, but John, Johnson had that same kind of reputation, right. but was it not as well known as, or as upfront as Nixon's in a way? Well, I mean, you, again, the sort of media environment that that had changed because of Vietnam. I have all these crazy examples of, you know, Johnson would say, you know, I slept with more women than Kennedy did on accident, you know, and and oh, yeah. everybody. I mean, there were there were certain things that the press just considered to be off limits. Uh, and um, and Watergate's also the turning point in, in that regard too. Um, you know this this idea that um, that uh, people really uh, thought that it was okay that some things would be secret, and Watergate was a turning point in that. Um, not just legally because of the. I mean, the release of the Pentagon Papers, that Supreme Court um, decision. Uh, it really changes how people view what they should know about government. Yeah. At the same time that uh, they're less able to put those things in context. Um, so and, and you know the release of the Pentagon Papers was the kind of the start of Watergate anyway. Uh, yeah, those are those are all great points. And I, I, I David, I, I, I'm especially interested in coming back perhaps at some point about your your approach to this as a, as sort of the culmination of a of a deep sort of constitutional tension uh, and political tension between the presidency and Congress. And I think maybe we'll, if we get into the court case and the role of the courts, as Stephen was just mentioning, we can love to think that through a little bit further. But uh, Stephen, you brought up, you know, the, the, the papers the, the, and, and all of these sorts of things. Can we, can we do a sort of basic uh, background of, of how this all came about? So my understanding is they were, there were two break-ins at the Watergate Hotel, correct? There was one that was deemed unsuccessful on the follow-up, and that's when that's when this group of, uh, I think it was five people, were caught. What was the, and I think there's some controversy over this, so I'd like to get uh, both of your thoughts on this, if you have thoughts on it. What was the reason? <laughs> what was the motive for the break-in? Because I've read multiple things. Yeah, I'm, we know. Go, well, you get. Uh, uh, go, you know, go ahead, Stephen. I'll, 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 okay, you so, guys are too polite. <laughs> too <yeah>. polite. <laughs> um, so, I, the, I, I think the newer scholarship uh, is uh, that there was just a, a general um, demand from the Nixon administration for political intelligence that never went away. And he was constantly frustrated by um, people who were not giving him what he wanted. And also, when the quest for political intelligence began, um, it was much earlier in his presidency, and and his re-election was not so secure. So that when... um, um, So... All of these, it's too much to call them structures, but let's call them uh, informal paths of breaking the law were all in place over the previous couple of years um, to do kind of low, dirty trick type 
things through uh, um, these shadowy side figures. Um, and then when the campaign started ramping up, um, he just Nixon was in a very general way just demanding more information, more intel, more information, more intel, and wanting to know things. But I don't think, um, and you may disagree, but I don't think Nixon specifically ordered the break-in. I think he was just demanding to know what the Democrats knew uh, and w what sort of uh, uh, approach they might be taking in how they're going to choose to attack him. And they also, I mean, the, there are various theories about things that Nixon might have been worried about, you know, some stuff involving his brother and Howard Hughes or something. Um, and uh, I, I think it was a general demand for intel, but given to a bunch of irresponsible wackos. Uh, I, 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 Professor Alvis may... Uh, disagree. Uh. No, I, I mean, I think that that I think that does kind of capture Nixon. I mean, it, so I mean, it is true when the when the break-ins happened uh, in in June of '72. Uh, the um, I mean, he was running fairly close to McGovern in the polls, um, so you know he had some reasons to be concerned. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, he did win the. Uh, 72 election by a landslide. He only lost Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he was always a little bit too neurotic. So, I mean, one of the big problems for Nixon personally was that he was neurotic. He lacked, he often lacked self-confidence. Um, and, um, and, but he was also too, he, he occupied an environment in Washington that um, in some ways uh, really, um, vindicated some of that neuroticism um, because, you know, after 40, uh, close to 50 years, right, of New Deal uh, liberalism dominating um, the national government, the, when Nixon comes in, he almost has no supporters, no allies, really, in, the, uh, in Congress or in the bureaucracy, and that right. was the biggest problem. This is, you know, oh, sorry to interrupt, but um, this, is a, this is such an important, I hope, this, I, I want to really agree with you on this. The ultimate vindication of Nixon's paranoia is the fact of how the Watergate scandal unfolds it is the bureaucracy comes to get him. I mean, now that we know who Deep Throat was, like it was somebody in the bureaucracy who was angry with him about being passed over for FBI director who did leak to the... I mean, it's so delicious or <laughs> dark or ironic or crazy that even paranoids have enemies. Uh, he was right. <laughs> uh, they were out to get him. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I mean, they were really all over the place. So you can see why he would lean <clears throat> so heavily on these groups. You know, part of the break-in was led by um, the committee to reelect the president with one of the greatest acronyms in American history, CREEP. Um, and then, uh, and then, all, uh, so, uh, so that's part of the the plumbers uh, crowd. And then also, too, the other part of it, though, is the other group involved in that Watergate break-in is the Special Investigations Unit uh, for the White House, which was set up by Nixon to basically stop leaks. Um, so the thing is, is that Nixon did actually constantly suffer from 
you know, uh, leaks uh, from the inside of the White House getting out. So he was he had reasons to be truly uh, neurotic. And so the, the problem tended to be that he overempowered these um, <clears throat> these sort of special uh, units designed to kind of um, uh, shore up the weakness of the executive branch under his leadership. And they often carried things too far, for instance, uh, with the Watergate break-ins. Yeah. One of the uh, people submitted a question about Eisenhower's view of right. SVP. And I, I think there's a, a lot about Nixon's biography that contributes to this general feeling. But, you know, stuff going back from, you know, him riding the bench in, uh, as a college football player or, you know, uh, uh, his father's grocery store, you know, him uh, not getting in, not getting any job applications from the elite East Coast law firms. Uh, coming out of law school. Um, but what Eisenhower detected in Nixon, and this is why uh, Nixon was the first Eisenhower revisionist, because uh, he, he, Nixon was the one who, who always said, you know, everybody sees that Eisenhower smile, but they don't understand what a cold and calculating man Eisenhower is behind that. And but one of the re but Eisenhower wasn't like that with every with everybody. But he was like that with Nixon. And I what what Eisenhower really saw in Nixon, and Eisenhower only, always called it a lack of maturity. But what that really meant was uh, that Eisenhower or that Nixon had this uh, streak of pettiness, uh, and 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 uh, impulsivity, uh, and. Um, uh, and he he always um, uh, mo moderated his praise of Nixon, and uh, why didn't he dump him in '56? Then, well, he didn't really have a good reason to. Nixon Nixon had been a, a, a good and effective vice president. I don't I don't want to overstate the stress in their relationship. Remember that Nixon's insecurity is a bottomless pit. So. You know, Eisenhower could have heaped praise on him, and he still would have been insecure about it. But, um, but the fact that Eisenhower was Eisenhower is trying to rebuild the Republican Party in a in a in a younger mold, and so he was he wanted to bring along a lot of people, not just Nixon. Um, it, it wouldn't have been uh, it, it would have been um, pretty scandalous if Eisenhower dropped Nixon. Uh, in, in 56, um, especially with the idea that... Uh, and the, the other thing is that, uh, again, if you're insecure, uh, to go through an experience like the 1960 election, where she barely loses, and then to lose the California governor's race, which was, you know, just devastating to him uh, in 62. Uh, so, uh, long answer to your short question, but... Uh, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, insecurity tends to breed more insecurity. You know, uh, do, do, do you guys think uh, Nixon's, his neuroticism, as you've described it, his insecurity, does that help explain the actions he took after the break-ins, uh, you know, were made, were, were known? Because, you know, again, Nixon, I think most people agree Nixon probably didn't order the break-ins, as you were saying earlier. Um, the, the controversy comes when he allegedly knowingly, 
um, bets in the cover-up of things somehow, right? And it's, I know it's complicated how that all comes about, but but um, and Nixon later, if I remember correctly, admitted that he should have done more to deal with um, sort of the emerging uh, you know knowledge of the break-ins and things like this up front, or just generally manage the situation better. Do how do we how do we explain Nixon's you know his you know the, either his complicit <laughs> complicity in the in the in the cover-ups or his ignorance of the cover-ups that were taking place well yeah, that's, it's, it's, oh sorry yeah. that that's a great question because i i think it it actually in some ways the answer to that question right kind of captures not just this episode for nixon but actually the whole problem for nixon uh as president so again right i mean he's got reasons to be neurotic because he's got a bureaucracy that he can't dislodge that constantly he, he lacks control of and so for Nixon, really, one of the major obsessions of his presidency is trying to reorganize the executive branch so that he can control it from the top down. So everything had been focused on that. So when this event comes along, right, I mean, it, it could have actually been dealt with much more easily. And that is uh, Nixon's own press secretary had gone out to the press and said, uh, this is some third-rate burglary by, you know, incompetent people who, you know, really are not that closely related to Nixon. And most of the public bought that. That is, the, uh, this was really a non-issue a, a non uh, for a very long time. Nobody was interested in it. They really regarded it as not a big deal. But Nixon was obsessed with it. Um, and so he uh, meets – he – uh, basically has his CIA uh, director, um, uh, Richard Helms, uh, put pressure on the FBI to stop, to slow down and stop the investigation. Uh, he meets with, uh, he, he employs his um, uh, chief of staff um, uh, to, uh, his chief of staff, uh, along with uh, 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 other members of his uh, cabinet to employ uh, pressure to keep the issue out of the papers. Um, so he does a lot more work than really was necessary because most of the public <laughs> kind of ignored the issue. It's, it's, it's amazing. And this is what, this is, that's actually, it's all those tape conversations of him trying to cover up what the public is not even interested in in the first place that really gets him into trouble later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's per that's a perfect way of uh, uh, explaining it. It's his, it's his own insecurity that leads him to put his hands on something that he didn't need to put his hands on. I mean, you can imagine, I always, when I'm, uh, when I teach like uh, Eisenhower in World War II or something, I always remind my students of the difference between reading a general's memoir and a soldier's memoir. In a general's memoir, there are maps and there are arrows and there are flags that are moving around. And in a soldier's memoir, it's all about inefficiency, foobar, missions <laughs> that make no sense. And, it's where you are in the bureaucracy it comes with your perception of whether or not this is working or not. Somebody like, uh, if you imagine uh, uh, this as a thought experiment, the, the, the break-in happening during the Eisenhower administration. First of all, Eisenhower would have said, well, that's weird. Uh, I hope somebody at the Republican Party looks into this. And it, or, or, or he would have said nothing. He would have done nothing. Uh, you know, uh, part of 
being a successful uh, leader of a large organization is knowing when not to get involved in small things. And, uh, and Nixon couldn't help himself, as uh, yeah. uh, Professor Alvis said. He just, why was he spending time on this? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> it's great. That's a great, that's a great point. We, ha we have a lot of really good questions, and um, uh, most of them have to do with sort of from the legal and constitutional perspective, um, the significance of this, of, of this crisis, especially on questions of executive privilege and the role of the courts and these things, which I'd like to get to. But um, uh, um, there was one, oh, I had one other question before we do that, if I can, if you'll indulge me. Yeah. So Nixon, Nixon appoints a special counsel, am I correct, to look into this? Yeah. And then he finds a way to fire the special counsel in the, What's it? Is it the Saturday Night Massacre, as it's called, right, or something? Right, like it's a cocksacker. <laughs> yeah. So how does I mean how, how does that I mean what's the thinking for Nixon in that? I mean, to me, it's baffling that he would. I mean, how does the special counsel? Why does he appoint the special counsel and then? Yeah. Why? So I mean, I, I can address a couple of, a little bit of that because some of the history of that actually is is interesting, and so you know when. Um, you know, things, you know, by early spring uh, of 1973, things are turning badly for Nixon. Uh, there's a number of people who are coming forward with information um, who've been who lower level officials who've been prosecuted in the uh, district court. Um, they try to throw the former attorney general, uh, John Mitchell, under the bus and um, it turn, and and uh, it turns out that that ends up being uh, very uh, unsuccessful. And then also too, um, the uh, the thing that really uh, so uh, uh, once once the congressional investigation gets going, right, they've got enough information to really start coming after Nixon. And so what Nixon does is um, he he convinces right some of his most trusted aides to basically take the fall for this, uh, including his attorney general at the time, uh, Klein Dissent, and Dean, he, uh, John Dean. Uh, he has his, um, uh, White, um, uh, his White House chief of staff, John Haldeman, resigns. Um, a, number of, a number of people resign. And then he agreed, it, it, it's at that point, this, that's when Nixon, under pressure from Congress, agrees to two things. One, to appoint a special prosecutor. And number two is Nixon, Nixon's biggest focus was uh, he insisted as a matter of executive privilege that his aides could not testify. And in some ways, this was a test of strength for Nixon, right? He wanted to show that he could control the executive branch against incursions by Congress. And so right. he refused to let the aides testify well uh, in front of what is known as the Watergate Commission or the Irvin Commission. And it's, he also ends up compromising on that. So he lets the aides testify and he allows for a special prosecutor. And he has to agree to that because he's got to replace his attorney general now with a new attorney general who's Elliot Richardson. And Congress agrees, okay, we'll approve your attorney general, but you have to, uh, he has to appoint a special prosecutor uh, for, the, uh, for the case. So Elliot Richardson appo appoints his former professor at Harvard Law, which is Archibald Cox, 
and then um, and then right it, it's right after that that you get this very famous question by one of the senators uh, in the investigation, James Baker, who's actually sympathetic to Nixon, and he he he's trying to defend Nixon, and he asks this famous question: What did the president know, and when did he know it? And the the, the answer would was supposed to be. Nobody thinks the president knows anything. Well, the, the problem is, is that John Dean, right, former aide to Nixon, testifies uh, the next day and basically gives all this information on Nixon and his involvement. And then the next day, a man named Alexander Butterfield testifies and says, oh, by the way, there are these tapes in the Oval Office. <laughs> so then... So then, 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 they, then, the, then the Irvin Committee says, "Well, we want those tapes," and they subpoena the tapes. And I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, and uh, subpoenas the White House for some of the tapes, right? And Nixon tries to make a deal with them, and he says, um, essentially, uh, "I'm not. Uh, I'll give you transcripts, but I won't give you the tapes." And I'll make sure that I'll have my friend, Senator John, uh, let's see, is it uh, Senator John Stennis from Mississippi, check the transcripts to make sure that they're okay. And that's, that's my deal. Cox says no. Nixon says, you accept this compromise or you're gone. And Cox says, I won't accept the compromise. And so they fire. And so they, they tell Richardson, right, the attorney general, fire Cox. Well, Richardson says, but that was part of our agreement when I got appointed. So he won't do it, so he resigns. Then Ruckelshaws is the deputy attorney general. He decides, I can't do that either, so he resigns, right? And then there's one person down on the totem pole in the DOJ that finally agrees to it, and his name is Robert Bork. And Bork says, I'll do it, and he fires him. Right. That's right. Yeah, somebody mentioned in the in the chat, uh, Lou mentioned that uh, the book, Robert Bork wrote, wrote a little book on Watergate, uh, which I have not read. I don't know if any of you have read it, but okay. but I was you know I'm always amazed you know that Bork played played such an important role in this. But um, uh, so David, if I understand, that was a great, very thorough explanation of the events that unfold. So is it my understanding that Dean Dean didn't uphold his end of the agreement somehow? Was Dean the, did you say Dean had agreed to kind of take the fall, and yet when he testified before Congress, he kind of let. Yeah, John Dean was one of those who was going to take was going to take the fall and resign and get out, right? And then um, I'm not exactly sure the events, right, that led to Dean being willing to give, you know, the full information. But he did so voluntarily, and he did so um, with some enthusiasm. So obviously, uh, he was one of those A's that really felt burnt uh, by uh, by Nixon. I, I sorry, I can't remember the chain of events that led to him becoming kind of an enthusiastic. Um, uh, witness before the Irving yeah, Committee. That's fascinating. So, he's yeah, the my general impression was though that he uh, he saw the handwriting. He was a smart enough guy that he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he said, you know, my what is what is my only chance of eventually having a life after Watergate? And he, uh, he, his you know road to Damascus moment, and uh, <laughs> and and just rolled out of bed and said, it's, yeah. I'm going to turn on Nixon. Um, it, it, he's not a, it, it's funny. He's done a lot to rehabilitate his image over the years. Uh, and, and 
portray himself as the whistleblower, you know, but he was neck deep in it the day before, <laughs> you know, you know, right, right up until the time when he decided to turn. He was, he was, he was right up in there. Yeah. Larry, Larry asked, was Dean promised a pardon um, so. in any way? Okay. All I, right. I don't know of any. Do you know of anything like that? I don't know. He promised. There was no deal. No deal worked out. Uh, this is kind of, kind of an aside, if you don't mind, another question from Lou about uh, Bork's role in this. Did that uh, affect his chances later when he was a nominee for the Supreme, Supreme Court? Oh, yeah. yeah. Bork kept him off the court. Okay, but good. I didn't forget that. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> All right. Outstanding. So now... So the um, uh, 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 Cox rejects Nixon's uh, deal offer, um, subpoenas the tapes. He wants them. He wants all the tapes. He wants them un, un, uh, unabridged, right? And all of this. And Nixon still refuses. Correct. I'm working our way up to the case. U.S. v. Nixon. Um, Nixon refuses, and. Um, the Supreme Court steps in and says, we'll, we'll, we'll resolve this. Is that pretty much how that works? Yeah, I mean, essentially, right. So, so they replace, they do fire Cox, right? And, um, oh, that's right. That's and right. Then, and then they replace him with um, a lawyer, a lawyer uh, from Houston named Leon Jaworski. And interestingly, Borg makes a deal with Congress uh, over the appointment. And that is he guarantees that Leon Jaworski will have full, uh, investigative authority, right? So he's got, this is actually important to the case, right? He's going to have full investigative authority, including the power to issue uh, subpoenas, right? So he's he's entirely uh, empowered to do that. And then, you know, nothing happens for, for a pretty good while, right? The, the whole investigation is very quiet. And then Jaworski comes out with these grand jury indictments of six of Nixon's aides, um, that's when things really get heated up, and then he issues a subpoena for the tapes in in April of '74, uh, and Nixon Nixon carefully phrases his response. He says, "When they start taking this to court, he says, I will follow the subpoena if right there is a definite decision by the court. Right? Uh, it has to be a de no. He doesn't explain what a definite decision is." But I think that would imply there can be no dissenters, right? Um, and so, you know, he said, oh. carefully crafts his phrase. So it makes its way from the district court to the Court of Appeals to the to the Supreme Court. Fascinating. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I, did, I didn't know about the definite thing. That's true. It's a definite decision. That That's important <coughs> because that is critical to how the court has to think about the decision it's going to render uh. S.V. Nixon because it can't. It, you can't have dissenters, right, because Nixon's going to challenge it, and you can't politicize the case, right, because Nixon will challenge that. Wow. Now that's, you know, that's fascinating because, you know, you, David, you brought up the, the, the imperial presidency with regard to Congress. I mean, that kind of influence that Nixon's trying to exert over a Supreme Court decision, I find really interesting. I don't know if anybody else would have found that shocking at the time. Well, it's interesting, right? So he believes, you know, just in the same way that I'm trying to deal with Congress, I got to deal with this, with this, you know, with this left-wing Warren court, right? So yeah. Yeah, his, his perception is, is that I've got enemies everywhere, right? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to bow down to them. And so the way that he frames the argument is fascinating in USC Nixon. There are many ways he could have framed this argument in technical terms. 
or, you know, and sort of let's find a compromise here, something like that. Instead, he frames the issue in this case as this is a political question and the court cannot even hear the case. So he tries to get the court to agree that it should not even be give standing in this case. That is, there should be the court should not be involved in this. This is a dispute between two executive officers and the court has no place in, in this in this court in this case. Oh, that's fascinating. So why does uh, why does the court accept the case? So why? Yeah, that's a good. They reject obviously. Obviously, they reject Nixon's. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, presentation of the nature of the case. Well, I, I guess it's in the be uh, There's a little bit of a rationale at the beginning of the decision. Oh, uh, great! Good uh, thing to turn to the document, right? Yeah. Um, you know the. Um, In the performance of assigned constitutional duties, each branch of the government must initially interpret the Constitution and the interpretation of its powers by any branches do great respect from the other. This is kind of directly addressing what Nixon's defense was supposed to be. The President's Council reads the Constitution as providing an absolute privilege of confidentiality for all presidential communications and uh, many decisions of the court. You know, So um, I, I sort of took that as the uh, rationale for why they felt like they had yeah. the uh, right to intervene. I, so I so it's a it's a constitutional. It seems to me the argument of the court is it's a it's a constitutional question, not a strictly <laughs> question. and it, it's raised to the level of a constitutional question because there's a tension between um, uh, executive privilege, which had been invoked. Right. Well, and 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 and, and, the, and satisfaction of justice or power, whatever the phrase is. Go ahead, please. I think the what I mean, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. This is just how I read it, which is uh, Nixon's blanket. The the broadness of Nixon's claim is what gave the court the uh, um, the desire to remind um, the executive branch that no right or privilege is absolute you know that, that i mean that's the, the the overall thrust of the decision is to to sort of say we you're right we wouldn't do this except for in extraordinary circumstances but these are extraordinary circumstances and in extraordinary circumstances no right is absolute i mean uh and certainly we we don't want to interfere with <laughs> The executive branch, but in this particular case, yes, of course, <laughs> the, 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 we uh, we have to. Um, but I, maybe you guys read it differently. No, I, I, I mean, in some ways, it's the argument that Nixon makes that forces the court to have to address the issue. Yeah, and that is, I mean, you could have made Nixon's um, attorney general. Uh, could have made the argument in this case on technical grounds about the subpoena, that something about the subpoena wasn't right. Or he could have made the argument that the subpoena's request for these tapes was too broad and might compromise national security. He could have made these little arguments. Instead, sure. instead the, the argument that they make in the case is, number one, 
this is an issue that involves the executive branch, so therefore the court should not be involved at all. Right. That's a really big claim, um, which really kind of marginalizes the court's ability to hear cases involving the executive branch. Right. The second thing is is that the 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 claim that Nixon makes for executive privilege, he doesn't say, look, there might be national security issues at stake here. He could have made that argument even if it wasn't entirely true. I mean, he could have kind of said, look, there's a national right. security concern here. I, you, you got to take my word on that. Right. But instead he said, no, no, I just have a generalized interest in secrecy. And um, the court said, well, 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 not not if it could. We, we're not going to accept your generalized claim of for secrecy and privilege when there's a conflict between a criminal case and your assertion of a broad uh, power of executive privilege, because otherwise we can't do our job as a court, which right. is to hear criminal cases. Yeah, because there is a tradition, David, isn't there? There is a, I mean, there are precedents of the courts being being sort of deferential to the release of, uh, of documents on national security grounds or might compromise national security if it's if it's made public, right? There is a tradition of that by this point, right? Going, In fact, perhaps going all the way back to Washington, uh, right? <laughs> all the way, yeah, Washington, you could have used- J-treaty negotiations. That's right, Washington asserted the executive privilege on national security concerns. I'm not gonna show you, you know, my deliberations over a treaty. And um, the other case that would have been quite, quite relevant here um, was, uh, and the court uses this here, is a case uh, called U.S. v. Reynolds, where what it did was it said, okay, right. we acknowledge that there is executive privilege when it comes to national security, and if there's an assertion of national security, we're not going to say that the president has to prove that it's national security before we hear the whether or not it's national security. They said, we admit that that's going too far. Right. They said that you do have to kind of show contextually that there's some reason for your claim, but we're willing to grant broad deference on that. And interestingly, in this case, the argument of the, of the attorney general for uh, Nixon is, who cares about that? We're just gonna assert that we all, everything we say is, is, is privileged. And yeah. The court said, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah. No, yeah, and you can see that right in the first paragraph of Berger's opinion because he, he rejects those claims outright. He says, uh, uh, yeah, court rejects the president's claims of absolute executive privilege, right? And they reject the contention, uh, his, broad, his broad claim that the separation of powers doctrine precludes judicial review of a president's claim of privilege. So something about separation of powers uh, means that ju the, the court's power of judicial review does not apply to presidential executive claims of, of privilege. And they also reject the, his second contention, which was that if he, if he does not prevail on the claim of absolute privilege, the court should hold as a matter of constitutional law that the privilege prevails over the subpoena, right? So, I mean, yeah. I'm still struggling to understand the rationale, as you point out, David, of the, of, uh, of the president's counsel on this, but... Yeah, the absolute privilege. I mean, that you know, okay, yeah, you do have to, you do have to reject that because that would have just profound implications for the court right. in terms of separation of powers. I actually do have a, an objection though to Berger's um, decision on what's called the justiciability issue. That is, I'd love to hear your yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, the political question. Okay, so here's what the court says, right, on the issue of whether or not the case should be granted standing um, to be heard. Because Nixon's argument is, look, this is a quarrel. So one of the the first issue in the case is, look, this is be- Nixon says, look, this is between me and my um, my special prosecutor because his special prosecutor is his, right? That is, that special prosecutor works for the president of the United States, even though he's investigating him. So he says, look, um, I can't have my special prop, one of my executive subordinates issuing subpoenas to me because I'm the person in charge. I'll tell you when it's in the public interest if this information gets out, right? And he's got a good point there, right? That is the executive is the chief, the president is the chief executive officer. He can't be subject, if there's a quarrel over whether or not a subpoena is desirable, it's ultimately the president who has to make the call, right? This is the also to the argument going on right now about the special special prosecutor Mueller, right? Does the president have to obey a subpoena? Well, uh, uh, not if the executive is the chief executive officer. They may that person ultimately has the decision when it comes to the subpoena. But the court's conclusion here was, well, no one fired Jaworski. He issued a subpoena. The subpoena is real. It's legitimate, it's valid, and he's still in, in office and no one's fired him. So therefore the subpoena stands, right? But the problem with that argument is it doesn't answer the question, who makes the final decision on the subpoena? You know, just because yeah. just because it got issued doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, has to be carried out. And it isn't at the end of the day, isn't the chief executive officer, the president, right, the person who gets to make a final say on whether or not a subpoena gets issued, since that's part of the prosecutorial powers of the executive branch. It's fascinating. Fascinating. So, um, since we're on it. I have one question I want to throw out to you, uh, though, about the general, uh, rather than the uh, um, general um, executive privilege, which is, um, remember this episode right before September 11th when President Bush was putting together an energy policy and yeah. Democrats were demanding to know who, which of the president's oil buddies had influenced yeah. the... Uh, and uh, they got no traction with that whatsoever with the Bush administration asserting gen- a, a general right to conduct business, the normal business of the executive branch, Without interference, so so that that I just wanted to remind people that 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 sort of this is under extraordinary. This is a decision for extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that I'm glad you mentioned that because we do have a couple of uh, a handful of um, questions on again on executive privilege and uh, sort of in general, including one from our from our good friend John Talley. Uh, who went through the MAG program and uh, and and did quite well? And graduated. Uh, good to see you, John. Uh, glad to see you're here. Uh, John asked, did the rationale of the court encourage future privilege seekers to profess to profess national security as a re- as a reason to claim privilege? And Nick also Nick submits uh, uh, the question: Has executive privilege been used before Nixon or after? And if so, what was the outcome? Stephen, you just mentioned one example in which that's been evoked. It's been evoked a lot, right? Um, yeah both before and since, but either of you want to tackle either of those questions from, from John or Nick? Yeah. I mean, I, I think on, on, on the, 
on the question of what, so the, this, the position of the court had been on executive privilege that the court will be highly deferential, but the, but you have to show contextually that it has something to do with either national security or domestic law enforcement. You, you, you have to show that, you, I mean, you have to explain the context, but you don't have to say, you don't have to expose the secret in order for the court to judge that it should be a secret. So that, that was a criteria. What, what Nixon wanted to do in U.S. v. Nixon is to say, well, look, even to explain the context is to reveal it's a secret. So therefore, we have to conclude that you have, the president has an absolute right of executive privilege. And the court said no. No, there's some, there is some um, room for judicial review here. <clears throat> and, and so the thing is, like, if you look at the Bush administration, that case with the energy, you know, the Bush administration did, right, have to show that, in fact, right, this had to do with um, domestic law enforcement and, and uh, in order to be able to maintain that, that executive privilege. That is, you, you couldn't just assert an absolute executive privilege. You've got to show that it's related either to domestic law enforcement or to uh, national security. I see. Yeah, by the way, on that point, if you don't mind, Laura, Laura um, uh, submitted, uh, she mentioned that um, uh, Nixon had already been through, I'm just reading her post, Nixon had already been through New York Times v. Nixon, which says essentially not everything can be, not every executive privilege can be justified on national security grounds, as you were pointing out, David, which may be why he didn't use that argument. But she's just submitted a question, which uh, I think may get into the complexities of how this system works. She says, can you, or she asks, can you clarify why, why the chief executive has ultimate authority over subpoenas? I think of subpoenas as in the judicial realm. Doesn't the Justice Department, <coughs> excuse me, ensure that? <coughs> and can't people be subpoenaed by both the prosecution and defense? That, yeah, that's a great question. That's a tough actually, question. That's, good that, that's a great question. That's the controversy that's going on during the Nixon administration. In fact, it, 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 Watergate is just kind of the culmination of a long argument about exactly that issue. So Congress's impression was what Laura is suggesting, and that is, look, these departments of the executive branch answer to us, right? And they had been used to working that way for a long time because they had sympathetic democratic administrations working with a democratic Congress. So they said, look, these, these agencies, they all are the our departments of justice, cabinet offices, they all, they answer to us, right? And the thing is, is that uh, Nixon's argument is, no, that's not how the executive branch works. The executive branch officers answer to the chief executive officer. And so what Nixon had to do in order to achieve his policy agenda was first re uh, uh, win on the issue of who controls the executive branch. So Nixon's argument was, look, a subpoena issued by the DOJ, that DOJ officer is my subordinate, and therefore the subpoena is really me. I'm, I'm giving the subpoena. It just happens to be delivered by one of my subordinates. And Congress's argument is, no, 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 that, that, that agency works under our statutory laws, right? right? They're answerable to us. So that's really the battle going yeah. on. No, that's that's fascinating. That's why I thought that was a great question because that really does get to the heart at uh, the heart of. There's also this other thing, which is that uh, um, Congress can issue subpoenas, 
uh, and so can uh, um, uh, the executive branch. So, uh, but the uh, congressional subpoena is, my understanding, they can't compel because they can't prosecute criminal law. So um, th this is one of the problems of congressional oversight, which is that uh, you know Congress has oversight and they can they they can make life uncomfortable for you, but ultimately the <laughs> It, it, if you want to prosecute someone for a crime, that prosecution has to come from the executive branch. And, and, and I, here I, I would add one more thing, too, and that is for Nixon, right, this is, you know, it, it, on the one hand, legally, the argument before the Supreme Court was a disaster, right? He, he asserted way too much. But for Nixon, the success of his presidency depended upon controlling his subordinates which required a very strong view of executive privilege that he was trying to use against Congress. So in some ways, he actually had to make this argument um, because if he was going to survive Watergate, he had to make the strongest, the success of his presidency would have required the strongest version of executive privilege possible in order to fend off Congress's view that it controlled these uh, lower level executive agents. That's great. Well, this is good stuff. This is really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a series of questions from Larry, uh, who's been waiting patiently for us to address his questions. But Larry is gonna push us toward more contemporary things, um, if you're both game. Right. Uh, so <laughs> Larry, Larry, Larry asks if the president has the power to reject a subpoena, investigating him wouldn't that put him above the law? Uh, he mentions that Clinton was forced to answer a subpoena, which I believe is correct, but perhaps either of you could touch on that. Um, and therefore, the precedent had already been set in, in Nixon, U.S. v. Nixon. Therefore, wouldn't Trump be compelled to answer a subpoena as well, hypothetically? Um, and then in his uh, very early post, which I thought was good, but I've kind of been holding off on it, from a purely constitutional, not partisan perspective, he's curious about the legal issues that are being you know, dealt with today, which may or may not have been resolved by the Watergate case. For example, the idea that the president cannot obstruct justice by firing an AG or a sitting president cannot face criminal charges uh, or the president being able to pardon himself and these sorts of things. So there's a lot there, but Larry is... I was is thinking about this as I saw the question float up and just on Friday or Thursday or Friday, uh, we had a case of... Uh, Congressional Oversight Committee demanding an unredacted document from the executive branch and the executive branch saying, we're not going to give it to you. Uh, and you want to talk about how the, you know, the, the, the whale is eating its own tail uh, the, with, with the idea that they're not going to give it to the House Intelligence Oversight Committee because they think that the House Intelligence Oversight Committee is too pro-president. Well, what's bizarre about this is, isn't the president supposed to be the one who's allegedly in charge of, right, of right. the executive it's, branch? Right. I, uh, that's great. It, I, I would say uh, we're into some strange territory. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so U.S. v. Nixon didn't settle everything. <laughs> no, the other irony of this... It made things more, more complex. Go ahead. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton was on Peter Rodino's legal team, and allegedly she's the one who authored the legal opinion that a president can be impeached for lying to the American people. 
which later really? becomes very ironic. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I've never tracked that. Uh, have you ever, uh, uh, Professor Alex, have you ever tracked that down to see if that's actually true or not? Or no. if it's just a dirty rumor? Uh, <laughs> but, it's a very dirty rumor. Yeah, very <laughs> dirty rumor. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the impeachment is supposed to be a, political process that exists almost outside of normal legal right. life and procedures. So, um, uh, but uh, it's probably the, uh, and again, may differ about this, but I, I think it's the only remedy uh, available to remove a president. So I sort of wonder, and we only we only sort of worked through this during the Clinton impeachment. Um, I don't know that any of these things were really resolved um, in, in terms of um, uh, how, how much of this, what, what can be compelled via a congressional investigation versus a criminal investigation. In other words, the, because the political wheels were marching along, some of these legal questions were never really settled. Uh, and I guess no legal question is ever permanently settled, but, uh, um, that's, part, that's, that's partly why this is always so interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. They're never really settled. So it's always keeps well, things. And today we're in such strange legal territory, um, with the, the, the house and Senate, uh, Intel oversight committees, um, I, with it, it, and we're seeing a. Um, but in many ways, it's like this is what was happening during the Nixon administration. We're seeing the executive branch turn on itself when they have a president who they don't like, <laughs> and uh, even paranoids have enemies. You you know the uh, how what orders do you have to follow? when you're a member of the executive branch. Yeah, that's, that's great. He, and even the relationship between, you know, President Trump and, and uh, Sessions as attorney general is one that's just also just confusing and fascinating. And well, in the actions of, of the Obama administration towards the tail end, you, you know. Yeah, that's right. Many of what, what they were sort of, uh, I mean, I don't know if they ever made this as a legal argument because they haven't, this stuff hasn't played out yet, but. I, I certainly got the impression that what they were saying is we were doing what we were doing out of patriotism, you know, uh, to protect these, uh, uh, these institutions of government before president Trump was going to take over. Uh, so that's certainly yeah. an interesting argument. Um, yeah. yeah. It's fun, yeah, because the, in terms politically, the arguments or the these issues are complex from both sides because, in many ways, there there you know parallel arguments being made. Um, well, I mean, go ahead, one, David. Sorry. Yeah, one point I would make is that, in, in my opinion, in in the final estimate, I think the the court's decision here is a very insignificant part of the of bringing down Nixon. I mean, what really mattered at the end of the day was uh, not the actions of Jaworski, not the um, 
the court's opinions, but rather the um, the congressional investigation and the turning of the tide of public opinion against Nixon. Right. Um, and in some ways, Nixon himself was in some ways his worst enemy. Um, and that's I, that I think at the end of the day is really what what happened. And so the, the here's the concern, right? And that is, so no, the, the answer to the question, I think, is no, the president is not above the law. But when it comes to the administration of justice, uh, that is a matter for the executive branch, right? Prosecuting and, and is solely a matter that belongs to the president. So the question is, you know, what do you do about a president who doesn't follow the law? And in some ways, this case actually is a great illustration of exactly what you do. You you threaten to impeach them, mm -hmm. and what will happen is inevitably they, uh, if if public opinion supports that, they will either resign, or or they or they will be impeached. And in some ways, the case I think really shows the success of the political process over any concerns right uh, about the particular legal issues. Yeah, right. the problem. I think the problem at the end of the day is Congress made the wrong reaction at the end of the day to this case. Mm. And that is they decided that what they needed in the future was an independent prosecutor that could hold the executive accountable and would not be uh, within the executive branch. And that's what they did for a long time until finally uh, Kenneth Starr came along and Congress decided that that wasn't such a good idea. And I, I think in some ways, right, that there's really in some ways no other solution than you have to battle these issues out between Congress and the president, and impeachment is a, a very effective threat, right? Any other, any other attempt to legally resolve this through special prosecutors or independent prosecutors is just um, uh, not very effective. And, and I think, you know, in terms of the Mueller investigation, um, insofar as the American public becomes convinced that Trump uh, 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 acts outside of the expectations of uh, Americans when it comes to uh, the constitutional duties of the executive. That's what will hurt him, as opposed to what the what the uh, what the what the special prosecutor uh, uh, reveals. Wow, that's those are great points. Go, I'm sorry, Stephen. I oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the ultimate story that I like to follow, the critical uh, is is Republicans turning against Nixon. I mean. Yeah. That's that's what you want to know why Nixon had to leave office is because the Republicans turned against him. It's the when uh, uh, George H. W. Bush walks in the room and says, "You've got to resign." Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. And um, so, to me, there's sort of uh, 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 another. Well, I'll, I'll let it go to the question. Well, but, but, but again, co Congress did write up articles of impeachment, or the House wrote up, they did, right? They yeah, wrote articles. Yeah. yeah. And there were Republicans that by that point felt they had no option but to support those articles, correct? Well, and it was what the math in the Senate was what, you know, in other words. Are you still there? Did we uh, lose Stephen? David, go ahead and jump it, in. It, hey, it always happens. Whenever you talk about the Senate, everything slows down. <laughs> you ever notice that? We lost you, Stephen. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Stop talking about the Senate. Don't talk about the Senate. Right? But, <laughs> you know, you're right. There were, there were three articles of impeachment against Nixon um, by the House Judiciary Committee, and then um, and, you know, uh, about three days after those, uh, those, those articles of impeachment come out, Nixon resigns. Yeah. 
Yeah, he just he sees the writing. So so I don't know if Stephen's back or not. I hope Stephen can can rejoin us here in the next few minutes. But David, since you're here, can you hear me? Are you back? Can you hear me? Can you hear you? You're a little fuzzy, but yeah, we can hear you. Good. Okay. Sorry, you were in the middle of talking about the Senate, <laughs> Steve. Stephen. Oh well, it, when, it sounds like you finished it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'll teach, that'll teach you not to offer a rebuttal. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to ask though uh, about the um, the pardon of Nixon since we're, we were on the impeachment. John uh, asked about. Yes, was Ford's pardon pardon of Nixon constitutional? I would I would add necessary. Was it necessary? What, what do you guys think? Yeah, um, I, think I mean so. definitely well, definitely constitutional. Um, was it you know in, in, in additional to the question was it necessary? I mean. The thing is, is that you're not going to be able to govern under the shadow of, of, a, of a court case, you know, uh, of a criminal proceeding against the president um, to whom you were the vice president. So, I mean, it was a, I think it was a, um, exactly the move that you needed to make in order to be able to acquire a, a mandate for governing. The problem was Ford. And that is Ford wasn't, just wasn't going to get a mandate whether there was a criminal proceeding against the former president or not. So the, um, at the end of the day, I guess you could really say at the end of the day, it was it would have been necessary for a president who could have actually acquired a mandate. It's just that Ford couldn't get one either way. So it was probably yeah. unnecessary. So it kind of re- I mean, I've heard people say it reflects badly. I mean, it raises suspicions on you know, Ford's motives for doing this. But but if a president, let's say like Reagan, who could have gotten a mandate. Had, had done something like this, it would have had a different effect, you, you think, David? I think Ford was never aggressive enough that anybody could have ever been suspicious of him. Oh, that's true. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I think a single, uh, the, it's, uh, it's either, the, the uh, depending on how reliable you think the polls are, it's either the most unpopular thing a president do, has ever done or the second most unpopular thing a president has ever What's done. The, well, what would be the first? Because I actually wanted to ask you as a kind of, both of you as a kind of, uh, Wrap-up question: Is there firing another MacArthur. parallel? Oh, the firing of MacArthur. Oh, okay. But polling was pretty shaky back in the Truman administration, so that's okay. why I say, you know, we can't really know. But certainly, yeah. uh, the the pardoning of Nixon and the and the firing of MacArthur are, are thirty or forty point drops in public approval of the president. Really, really, yeah, yeah that's fascinating. Um, is there? But is there? Uh, in terms of the level of, I mean, since we're talking about crises as part of our series, uh, uh, how, how does this measure up, you guys think, to, to sort of other significant crises um, in American history? Um, I know it's still a it's still a big deal to a lot of people, and and rightly so, deserves to be studied and, and talked about. But was was it as big a crisis as um, as people make it out to be? Maybe that's an unfair question to end with, but uh, it, it, it. I think it depends on if the republic ends soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, if the republic. Steve's a good judge. Yeah. Uh, so you know, if in a hundred years we don't live in a republic, I think people will look back on Watergate and say, "Well, there you go." You know, uh, that was uh, this. Um, uh, th- this was the turning point, and uh, when people became so cynical, and 
you know, our colleges and universities were filled with a bunch of professors who hate America, and uh, therefore, and no one was learning any civics or history from that point on. And uh, you know, uh, politics became a blood sport. So, in, in that sense, uh, if uh, I, I hope I'm joking, but um, <laughs> I'd be hard too. The, it, uh, it, it, it certainly, I, I think it'll. I, I think it will loom pretty large. Uh, um, if our representative institutions fail in the next mm-hmm. 50 years or so. I, 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 go ahead, David, please. Yeah, sorry. I, you know, in some ways, right, the Republican Party actually survived this. I mean, I mean they, got hit, they got hit pretty hard for a little bit, but they, they actually survived this, right? So it probably doesn't rank as bad as signing the Alien and Sedition Acts. Right. Ah, uh, I mean, when you lose yeah. your whole political party forever, right? That's that's the worst, right? That's the worst that could happen <laughs> to you. In in some ways, though, you know, I mean, really, when you look at Reagan, right? Reagan's Reagan's strategy with the executive branch is really not that different from Nixon. In hmm. some ways, he's just a less neurotic version of Nixon. So, in in some ways, I don't, and you know the. I, I do think that the impression of Nixon, uh, I mean, in some ways, it, it's the, the, the ghost of Nixon, right, still remains for those, right, who were concerned with an entrenched bureaucracy. And in some ways, right, I think public opinion has been moderating in some ways on Nixon, seeing, you know, Watergate as part of a broader, uh, uh, a, a broader problem, right, in terms of... Um, in terms of D.C. and, and the, the nature of the institutional arrangements of the, in the 20th century. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, I, I, I'd say it's, it's, it's bad 50-50. Yeah. David, I owe you a steak dinner and a beer uh, because you just did a great job of setting us up for our next webinar, <laughs> which is on the Iranian hostage crisis. So um, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So. Uh, we have a couple. That's, this has been fantastic, you, uh, gentlemen. As always, um, you're a wealth of knowledge, and it's just always a fun conversation. Um, so I thank you very much, both of you, for your time. We have a, had a couple of other questions added at the end. That I wish we had time to get to. They're great questions. Um, but uh, but uh, thanks to everybody else who submitted questions today. They were fantastic. And um, guys, I really really appreciate your time. Always uh, always a pleasure. And as always, I I learn a great deal from both of you. So thanks. Thank you, Chris. Um, So again, uh, just a reminder, if you've joined us today, you'll get the email with a link for your certificate of participation. Uh, I mentioned our next webinar will be on the Iranian hostage crisis. So David, I'm sure some some of the same kinds of questions about Reagan will come up and uh, we'll be joined uh, by Stephen too. Stephen, you're going to join us again for that that webinar. as well as uh, Gregory Schneider of Emporia University. This is on May 12th. And David, as always, you are welcome to join us if you're free and, and willing. You are. Yeah, I'm not going to let Greg just be the other side of that debate. I'll be there. I'll, I'll, you write me down. I'll write you down. I'll pencil you in. Great. We'll have a, we'll have a great, uh, great argument and debate over this. So great. Thanks again, everybody. Um, hope to see you all on, uh, on May 12th for our final, final webinar of this series. So until then, take care. Thanks. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. 
You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.